0: we are considering, we will consider a a second sermon in the series that uh, I began last week called, And They Sang. Singing has always held an important place in the hearts of God's people, and we could argue in the heart of God himself. Singing unifies us and allows us to connect truth to emotion in deep and meaningful ways. We are aiming in this series to consider many of the songs recorded for us in the Bible as a way of hearing, appreciating, and learning from those songs which have sustained and expressed the hearts of God's people for millennia. This not only acquaints us often with parts of the Bible with which we may not be terribly familiar, but it gives us a standard by which we can judge some of the songs that have been written Since the closing of the canon, it gives us wisdom as we consider the songs that we should sing ourselves. Last week in Exodus 15, we saw the severity, supremacy, and sympathy of God woven together beautifully in the song of Moses uh, really, the songs of Moses and Miriam sung by the Red Sea after God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage. Today, I want to look at another song of Moses with you. So if you haven't already done so, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find it on page 173. And we will be looking at the whole song, verses 1 to 47, the song and a couple after that. And I've entitled the sermon, No Empty Word. And the key words for our worshipers in training are Proclaim Rejoice and word. So we travel through these verses. Uh, I want to make five stops. They will all be relatively brief, and we will make five observations. First, we'll see in verses one to fourteen that God loves his people despite their unloveliness. Second, we'll see in verses fifteen to twenty-five that we provoke God to jealousy and wrath by our sin. Third, we see in verses 26 through 33 that idolatry has a bitter end. Fourth, in verses 34 through 43, we see that vengeance belongs to God alone. And finally, in 44 through 47, we see that praise be to God. Judgment isn't the last word. Chapter 32 of Deuteronomy begins with the words of a song which are introduced in the last verse of the previous chapter. uh, Chapter 31, verse 30. The book of Deuteronomy serves as a whole as a final word of instruction and warning to Israel before they enter the promised land. God rescued Israel out of Egypt and brought them to the land he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet, uh, when we get to Numbers 13 and 14 we see that they refuse to go in and take the land they stand before the land but they're fearful and they lack faith they won't enter and so God punished Israel for their lack of faith they were to wander in the wilderness until all the adults of that generation died then their children were to take the promised land at the end of the book of numbers this is where we find Israel This is where we find Israel at the beginning of Deuteronomy. A new generation standing at the edge of Canaan, ready to enter. And then Moses delivers this series of sermons in Deuteronomy, aimed at reminding the new generation of where they had been, where they're going. And he finishes these exhortations in chapter 30. Joshua is appointed Moses' successor and commissioned to lead Israel in chapter 31. And before Moses dies, he concludes his life in ministry with a song in chapter 32, and he pronounces a blessing on Israel in chapter 33, and then the book ends in chapter 34 with an account of his death, and it sets up the next chapter of the story of God's work in the world through his people Israel. And one last thing to note before we look at the song, the The song actually comes right on the heels of a fairly depressing announcement. At the very end of chapter 31, Moses says in verse 27, I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? He then calls heaven and earth to witness against them, and he says in verse 29, I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly, and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. So when we understand this as the backdrop to the song, the opening words that we will read in a minute are quite jarring. Because we've said that the opening Words. Verses one to fourteen really convey the idea, this major idea that God loves his people. But as we'll see, they sound pretty awful. But this is what God's this is what makes God's love so astounding. Let's consider verses one to fourteen. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. My teaching may my teaching drop as the rain My speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the grass, like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation." Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. And he suckled with him honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. So Moses introduces this song in verses one to four as a word of blessing and refreshment for the people despite the very troubling words he had just had to say to them. He desires his words to be like a refreshing rain on a dry and weary land. And he says, God is a rock. His work is perfect. His ways are justice. God is faithful and without sin. He is just and upright. But his people deeply struggle to be so. We see in verses 5 and 6 that they they dealt corruptly with God. They go so far in their corruption that they reject their own sonship. Moses then asks this rebellious people some very pointed questions. He says, do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? In other words, is this really how you... Respond to God's kindness. Is it good to rebel against the one who made you and established you? Is this really how you will treat the rock who bore you? What piercing questions from the mouth of Moses. The rebellion of their past, specifically the incident in Exodus 32 with the golden calf is in mind here. And their rebellions yet to come. All of them are against God who made them. In verses 7 and 9, the rebellion, it comes across as even more grievous. God set the boundaries for all the people and for Israel, and he chose Israel for himself. Despite how small in number they were, how weak, how sinful, he chose them for himself to be his allotted portion. The description of God's love for Jacob continues in the following five verses with various metaphors. He encircled him. He cared for him. He made him the apple of his eye in verse 10. He bore him on his wings in verse 11. He alone guided him in verse 12. He made him to ride on the high places of the land and fed him quite well. 13 and 14, What? Kindness. What love. Despite Israel's rebellion against him, God loved and cared for his people. Over and over again, they sinned against him. And over and over, he met their sin with love and mercy. And this is an instructive word for us. Are you weighed down with your own sins? Burdened? Because of your failure to love God supremely? How good it is to remember that it is not my love for God, but His love for me that stands as the central theme and most important fact about my life and my salvation. So we see that God loves His people. However, we need not abuse such love. We see in verses 15 to 25 a second thing. Despite our loveliness, God loves us. But it is true that when we sin intentionally and our, we, we live in high-handed rebellion against God, it provokes Him to jealousy And to anger. I'm going to read verses 15 to 25 here. But Jeshurun, it's a poetic name for Israel. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of His sons and His daughters. And He said, I will hide My face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with the foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns in the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous Pestilence! I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror for young man and woman alike. The nursing child with the man of gray hairs. So the message here, we see, first in fifteen to eighteen, that Israel takes God's love, His provision. And he turns them on their heads to worship idols. God had loved and cared for and provided for Israel, and yet they rebelled. They, they sought after those things from other gods. Israel was small, weak, and hard-hearted, but God loved them anyway. And yet, Israel found expressions of God's mercy, love, and kindness as an opportunity to forsake God and find other gods. Throughout the course of their history, and at this point in Deuteronomy, it had maybe been 40 years since they had come out of Egypt, Israel had provoked God often with to anger with abominations and strange gods. I mentioned it earlier, and really what we're thinking about here is Exodus 32, the golden calf. This is the supreme and most notable example of their rebellion. God had just delivered them out of e- Egyptian bondage, And because Moses takes longer than they want getting down the mountain, they throw their gold into a fire. They fashion a golden calf that they may worship. And in doing so, we're told here that they actually sacrificed to demons and were unmindful of God, forgetting the Lord who bore them. God says that he would hide his face from them. He becomes jealous and provoked to anger. In verse 21, verse 22, a fire is kindled, which burns in the depths of Sheol, destroying the foundations of the earth. He says in 23 to 25 that he will heap disasters upon them. He will spend his arrows on them. War in their midst would not cease. Hunger, plague and pestilence will ravage them along with wild beasts and things that crawl in the dust. Safety shall not be found either inside nor outside. No one shall escape. Male and female, young and old, shall be stricken by this judgment. And so what is the message for us? What do we learn here? Well, God is not a doormat. Without question, He loves His people with an undying, irrevocable love. But these words destroy the notion that we may do whatever we please and that God will just forgive us in the end because it's His job. It's not God's job to forgive us. It is pure mercy that he forgives us. We need to be warned here. How often do we take God's kindness for granted? Well, I said these would be brief, so moving on to our third leg of the journey. Idolatry has a bitter end. In verses 26 through 33. Despite its promises to the contrary, idolatry has a very bitter end. Beginning in verse 26, I would have said I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand, and two have put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock, our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. And so here we see what happens to those who refuse to give up their pursuit of strange gods and demons. And again, lest we think we're uh, immune to this, because we may not have carved statues, wooden idols, um, we can certainly commit idolatry with the best of them. We can worship ourselves, our families, our jobs, our stuff, money, the things money can buy, food, pleasure, comfort, peace, all of it. see what happens to those who make good things into god things. I must admit though these verses twenty six through thirty three uh, I think are, are can be kind of difficult to understand at first they admittedly they they were for me. commentators are divided, and as you try to consider what is exactly being said here you you may not find um, Many explanations to be very satisfying, but I think we can come to a, a grasp of the essence of what's being communicated here. First, we see in 26 through 28, um, really 26 and 27 actually, that, that God is going to wreak havoc on Israel for their idolatry, but there would be a Limit. The stated reason in these verses is the inevitable misunderstanding by the nations that would result were God to utterly wipe out Israel. God is using highly anthropomorphic language. In other words, he's speaking in human terms. God fears nothing, after all. But he's talking in this way. He says, had I not feared provocation, right? It's a way of communicating that his people's transgressions were so vile, so worthy of judgment, that he had refrained from destroying them because the nations would likely, they would in fact, misinterpret the act. And so in human terms, he feared provocation by the enemy. God is saying that since those opposed to God and his people would have taken credit themselves for the destruction of Israel, God does not completely decimate them. But they certainly deserved it. Their idolatry, we see, leads them in verse 29 to to be a nation devoid of counsel with no understanding in them, who just like the surrounding nations were prone to misunderstandings. In verse 30, we see an example of this foolishness, their inability to understand. It's a reference to what happens in Numbers 14, 39 through 45. And there we read of Israel's defeat by the Amalekites and the Canaanites at Hormah. This was a particularly embarrassing defeat, given that Israel outnumbered them 1,000 to 1. They should have understood this defeat to be a judgment of God, but as you read that story, we see that they didn't. And so the Lord refers back to this event as a way of demonstrating the folly of his people. As they continue to rebel against him. But then in verse 31, the the voice of the speaker seems to shift. The Lord, his voice has been prominent since verse 20. The Lord has been speaking. But Moses interjects here in verse 31 and comments on the bitter end of the adversaries of God. He says that all who array themselves against God and His people, who give themselves up to idolatry, shall meet an end like Sodom. They shall see destruction like Gomorrah. And yet it will be far worse. Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities in Genesis that God destroyed with fire from heaven for their great wickedness. But Jesus says something quite interesting about Sodom and Gomorrah. In Matthew 11, But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The the descendants, spiritually speaking, of Sodom and Gomorrah shall receive a much harsher judgment than they did themselves. Why? Well, it's because they have received a greater light. Jesus' argument is apparently that if Sodom had Had the revelation that the the people in Jesus' day did, even more so, had the revelation that people in our day do, they would have turned from their sins and been saved. But for those who continue in rebellion today, despite the coming of the Son of God into the world, their judgment will be far harsher than those who do not have such revelation. So in the end, idolatry has a bitter sting. It promises much, and it always under-delivers. This is an instructive word for us. Every time you face temptation, you can guarantee that it will overpromise and under-deliver. In the end, idols... We see in verse 33, provide us with nothing better than bitter grapes and venomous snakes. The fourth thing that we see really kind of brings the second and third uh, observations that we've just made to a close. We provoke God to jealousy by our sin, idolatry has a bitter end and we see in verses 34 through 43 vengeance belongs to the lord is this is verse 34 is not this laid up in store with me sealed up in my treasuries vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swift swiftly For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants when He sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Then He will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I, lift up the cup, for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me, and I will make my arrows drunk with, want- with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens! Bow down to him, all gods! For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So Moses is interjected. Verses uh, 31-33, to the Lord's voice returns to the fore here. And he asks a bit of a rhetorical question. And he answers it in verses 34 and 35. He says, Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? These disasters to come upon idolaters. Because while the the disasters poured out on Israel in 19-25 to would appear to have come from nature or surrounding armies... God goes to great lengths in these verses to say emphatically that they are, in fact, from him. Vengeance and recompense are his. Those who set themselves against God are on borrowed time. And there is a day coming when time will run out. Their foot will slip. Calamity will fall upon them. And their doom shall come swiftly in verses 37 and 38, there's really there's an accounting for Israel and a mocking of the false gods that they had served in rebellion. Shall they arise to defend Israel? Surely not. God asserts himself here against all other so-called gods. He says there is no God beside him, none other than the I Am. He kills and makes alive. He wounds and heals. There is none that can deliver from his hand. The weak, incompetent, and non-existent gods of the nations, those Israel regularly had fallen prey to serving, they stand as nothing before the God of all the earth. He will pour out His vengeance and all oppose Him. Swearing by His own eternal and indestructible life, in verses 39-42, to He states, in no uncertain terms, that when He unsheathes His sword and sets about justice, there shall be nothing left of any who stand in his way. He will repay those who hate him. His arrows will be drunk with blood. His sword shall devour flesh. And he shall remove the head of his enemy. And then Moses' voice returns a final time in verse 43. And he calls upon the heavens to rejoice and commands everything that would call itself a God to humbly bow before the might and majesty of Yahweh. God does not take lightly threats against His people, His chosen people, His portion. And here we see He avenges the blood of His children and takes vengeance on His enemies, repaying those who hate Him, cleansing the land of wickedness. Fifth, finally, you may have noticed we, we skipped over uh, commenting on verse 36 at all a moment ago. And I, I want to bring that verse in here for this fifth and final point that judgment isn't the last word. Read in verse, I'll read 36 and then 44 through 47. 36, for the Lord will vindicate his people, have compassion on his servants when he, sets, when he sees that their power is gone there's none remaining bond or free. Verse 44, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun, and when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, take heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that you may be faithful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you were going over the Jordan to possess. God had judged Israel's sin. He brought hard calamities upon them. But in the end, God will vindicate His people and have compassion on those who love Him. We said earlier that God didn't destroy Israel his people because of his own reputation, and that's true. But it's not the only reason why he didn't. Here's another. God loved his prized and treasured possession. God's compassion and kindness restrained the severity of his judgment against Israel. Seeing them as weak and helpless, God's heart grew warm, and he relented and joyfully shows them mercy. And he relents and shows us mercy today. We may, with the children of Israel, take these words to heart. God's word isn't empty. It's our very life. There's blessing to be found in it. There is hope to be found. Sin comes at a high price. But Christ Paid that price and for each and every one of us here in this room we can have peace with God through Jesus Christ and so this is what's set before us today there's really just one question left to answer for each and every one of us and I'll I'll ask it a couple different ways. Are you a friend or a foe to the Almighty? Are you companion or contender? Will you receive his word or will you reject it? Which shall it be? You see, you were born an enemy. We all were. Each one of us in this room was born at enmity with God, rebels and sinners. And so the word of judgment from Deuteronomy 32 stands against us from birth. But judgment isn't the final word. Verses 35 and 36 are actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews is full of warnings and threats of judgment against idolatry and apostasy. Perhaps the harshest warning in the entire book is found in chapter 10, where we find a reference to Deuteronomy 32. In, in Hebrews 10, 26-31, we read that those who sinned against the law of Moses died without mercy. Therefore, how much worse shall it be for those who spurn the Son of God and outrage the Spirit of grace? How much worse for those, as we said earlier, who, like worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, have more access to greater revelation, they still reject the word of God. Vengeance is the Lord's. It is, Hebrews tells us, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But he goes on in verses 37-38 to of that chapter and he offers us hope. He says the righteous are those who live by faith and don't shrink back. Do you have faith? Through faith we can run the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now... As we so rightly celebrate today, he is now risen and seated at the right hand of God. Jesus' sinless life and atoning death are vindicated by his resurrection from the dead three days later. And what's the point of all of it? Why do all of it? Hebrews tells us, Jesus does it to make us sons. We saw in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 32 that Israel rejected their sonship. In our rebellion against God from birth, we reject and forfeit our sonship. We have gone after other gods, other fathers, and yet through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God recalls us sons. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are made sons and daughters of God. If you are not a Christian, you are here this morning listening to this sermon, I urge you to consider your standing with God to put your faith in Jesus Christ that you may be delivered from the wrath to come. And if you are here trusting in Jesus this morning, sing with all your heart to the God who loved you and gave His Son for you. He's brought you from death to life, made you His friend and child forever. As so we saw last week, this song, like Exodus 15, is filled to the brim with truth. Some truths that delight our hearts, some truths that rebuke our hearts. And pray that we would learn to sing songs, full songs, robust songs, like the songs of scripture to the glory of God.